Hello, you're watching Global Investor on Business Day TV. I'm Stephen Gagnon. Nick Norman-Smith from Lentis Asset Management joins me this evening to guide us through all the latest news on global markets. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Anil Jogmohan to discuss the Ned Group Investments Global Equity Fund. All that coming your way shortly. First, though, a quick look at what's been making the headlines. Well, Facebook founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg walked away from his Congress testimony on data leaks by Cambridge Analytica, a richer man. Zuckerberg's net worth increased by $3 billion as he appeared before Congress, while the company's total market value increased by a whopping $23 billion since his apology. Last week, Facebook shares hit their highest level in almost three weeks, but they're still below the all-time high reached just before the Cambridge Analytica scandal hit. Well, in the UK, retailer Tesco has reported results that beat analyst expectations as well as its own forecast. Full-year profits surged 28% due to a strong end to the year in its home market, sending its shares to their highest since 2015. Tesco's turnaround comes just four years after a major accounting scandal plunged the retailer into its deepest crisis ever. And staying with results, the US earnings season kicked off with three major banks reporting results. Quarterly profits at J.P. Morgan Chase missed expectations, while Wells Fargo and Citi beat profit expectations. Here's more on that. Three big U.S. banks reported earnings on Friday morning. Quarterly profit at J.P. Morgan Chase fell short of Wall Street expectations. Lower revenue from investment banking ate into gains from stock trading and higher interest rates. JP Morgan stock fell. Wells Fargo's quarterly profit rose. But the bank got hit with a possibility of a $1 billion fine to settle loan abuses. And it said it may have to revise its quarterly results to reflect that. Wells Fargo shares plunged. Citigroup beat on profit, driven by strength in consumer banking and equity trading. But its stock fell as well. So Nick Norman-Smith from Lentis Asset Management. Um, well, let's look at those results in just a moment. Maybe start with the, with the broader markets, because a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about trade wars with China. That seems to have totally disappeared while we're all focused on Syria. But it looks like the market is looking past those strikes by the U.S. over the weekend. Yeah, the, you know, the, we, we saw a big effect, uh, probably the biggest positive effect, if you want to call it that, if you're an investor in the oil markets, is, uh, is increased, um, increased oil prices on that, on that global uncertainty. But yeah, at the moment, the market seems to be looking past it. Uh, you know, the market can be quite, quite short-term like that. You know, mm -hmm. As you mentioned, it was, it was all, about, um, all about the trade wars not too long ago. I'd say if you want to con be concerned long-term, that's a long-term concern. You know, war, without being uh, too brazen about it, you know, war will come and go. But, um, but something like a trade war that can really, that can really impair global trade for, for a longer time period. Um, so I think that is something the market should be concerned about. Mm -hmm. And we did have news that the, the Chinese trade surplus with the U.S. surged by 20% in the first quarter, so $58 billion. And I'm sure that's a number that Donald Trump will be looking at very closely. Yeah, indeed, and uh, I guess he probably just needs to get his opinion polls up. So at the moment, uh, serious strikes are a really good thing. As soon as that dies down, you can be sure he'll be back on Twitter tweeting again you know, about China. So we, we wait with bated breath. Mm. Well, one Trump move that the market has welcomed were the, the tax cuts which were announced right at the beginning of the year. And many analysts thinking you're going to start seeing them coming through in those first quarter earnings. Of course, there will be an effect for the, for the whole year. Are, are you expecting to see any dramatic increase in, in profits and 
due to those tax, tax cuts? Yeah, look, it, it's relatively predictable. Obviously, it depends where they're earning their taxes, what, the, what they're doing, if they've got uh, foreign cash that they want to repatriate, et cetera, et cetera. But the market is pricing in quite a lot of good news. So you know, one wonders if the market's priced that in and more. Uh, I think we, you know, this earnings season, you're going to have to, you know, see some pretty strong results to to outperform the already positive uh, expectations. So, so time will tell. But yeah, you know, it's 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 mathematics. So as soon as those are announced, it's relatively easy to understand what the what the effects will be. You know, the c- question is, how much further into the future is the market going to price that? Obviously, the next the next regime could come in and change it. So. As an investor, one needs to be careful about about taking too much um, in terms of these short-term things, and certainly if it's positive, you know, pricing that an ad infinitum can can be a bit risky. Mm. Well, well, we've had four of the, the U.S. banks reporting back so far. I think J.P. Morgan, Chase, Wells Fargo, City all reporting on Friday. We also had Bank of America coming out with some numbers today, um, and it looks like while well, Wells Fargo and City beat expectations, their share prices were down. With Wells Fargo that has a, a one billion dollar um, potential fine hanging over it. So JP Morgan, though, missing expectations. Yeah, so with Wells not helping, there's already negative sentiment given given all the sort of histrionics that have been happening over the last year or two. So the fact that they uh, discussed another fine, this this based on some automake, uh, automotive uh, products that they, that they sold or missold, um, I don't think is, is helping their cause and, and push sentiment weaker. So we saw that share price down uh, quite a bit. Uh, and Wells Fargo was one of the favourites with analysts, and particularly South, Af- South African analysts liked Wells Fargo. Would you be steering clear of, some, of, of a bank like this while it does have things hanging over it? No, I think it, it, provides, it provides opportunities. So certainly the share price has rallied quite strongly over the last number of years, although it's, it's had a couple of hiccups in the last, in the last year or two. Um, but it's a very good business. Um, it obviously has some, some issues that need to be worked out. You've got to decide if those are, you know, I- if those are so negative that, it, that it's going to plague the whole business. But it's got a massive market share. It's got a lot of products in U.S. households, which makes it quite sticky. So I often compare it to something like a discovery. If you've got a lot of um, cross-sold products, that means that uh, your cost of funding is very low because people are willing to take much less of a uh, uh, much lower interest rate than they would somewhere else. And if your cost of funding is low and you're a bank, that's your biggest input you can earn a higher margin than, than anybody else, and that has all sorts of benefits. Of course, the concern with everyone now is, well, yes, they cross-sold, but some of those were cross-sold in a way that's not fair and needs to be unwound. But I think the reality is it, it's still a, a very big bank with, you know, with a large loan book, and it has a significant amount of value. So no, I wouldn't write it off. Mm. The impact of rising interest rate for, for these banks, um, because Bank of America did well on the back of rising interest rates and a growing loan book. Yeah, as always, it sort of depends why those those rates are rising. But generally speaking, what we've seen with a lot of these financial institutions is record low rates have been quite bad for them. Um, and especially someone like Wells, if you're paying a very low rate, they call it an endowment effect. So your your cost of funding is almost close to zero. If the market rate is at 2%, that's all that you're making. Now, when that rate goes up to 3 4 5%, your, your underlying cost of funding doesn't move up as much. And as that spread widens, you, you make more money. So generally speaking, I would say a, a, rising, a rising interest rate environment will be, will be positive, especially someone like Wells that has a massive deposit base, a retail deposit base, and that retail deposit base is generally very cheap funding. Okay, um, what would you be buying in the, in the banking space in the, in the, in the US? Anything that's, that you like? 
Yeah, we, we like Wales. It's, it's relatively, it, it's had its troubles, obviously, and it's, it's certainly not as cheap as it was, but it's, it's, a, it's a solid business. It's relatively easy to understand. It's quite simple. It's got a lot of mortgage exposure um, and, and retail banking exposure, so it doesn't have as much volatility as, as an investment bank. And it also has quite a lot of virtually all U.S. exposure. So you, you know, people have forgotten about the, the debt crises in Europe, mm -hmm. but that stuff is still there and it's still on balance sheets and it's tough to price, whereas the U.S. exposure is a little bit simpler to, to understand. So maybe a bit dull and boring, but you know, banks, banks are good businesses. Okay, well, let's move on to retailers. Um, and we've chatted about the U.K. Reta retailers before. I think you quite like Sainsbury in the past, and that was really because of its property and the property it owned. And um, we were talking about Tesco today. Um, so it's beaten expectations, 28% jump in 2017 profit. Uh, and it looks like there has been quite a big recovery under Dave Lewis, who's, who's the CEO that was brought on following the, the scandal that hit it about four years ago. Yeah, exactly. So again, like something like a Wells, uh, there's an opportunity in Tesco in terms of the specific accounting scandal. And then the fact that the, the industry was under a lot of pressure and is very negative because we had a lot of, uh, we had two in particular German low-cost retailers coming in mm. discounting. So Aldi and Lidl. Correct. Um, but the reality is Tesco has a massive amount of market share. It has big scale, which means they've got strong purchasing power. So people are still concerned about the effect of Amazon and the effect of Aldi and Lidl. But they still have big, big purchasing power. It's a, it's a massive amount of, of the UK retail spend that gets spent in, uh, in Tesco. So um, it, it still remains a, a good business. And your biggest barrier to entry or, uh, or competitive advantage there is scale, and they certainly have that. So it looks like Walmart is taking on Amazon in India. Um, it talks uh, in the markets at the moment that it plans to take over a majority of Flipkart. Uh, Flipkart, I think Nasperos has a, a small stake in Flipkart yeah. as well. Um, but that, that would really pit it up against the likes of Amazon in the Indian market. Yeah, so again, very similar to Tesco, Walmart has massive market share in the US. There's still a lot of online retail that gets done there. And again, the reason they've been so successful is that they've leveraged their buying power and scale and taken over basically the whole of the US. So what they've missed out on is how to connect with clients uh, on an online basis. So what they've been doing um, the is, is buying these businesses that have the existing distribution network mm -hmm. and if they can add that to their buying power that's quite powerful so they've gone to alliance with jd.com in china and um, now they're actually buying um, a flipkart in in india as well so they're saying we can we know how to do the logistics we know how to do the buying we've got the scale if we can plug that in and get access to a new market fantastic so the strategy makes sense the question is how much are they paying for that and can they get a return on on that investment given that there is still quite a lot of positivity towards these uh, online businesses okay, but, but we shouldn't be writing off those brick and mortar retailers just yet if they are adopting strategies like these no i, I don't think so but the key as always is what is the price that yeah. you that you're paying i'm not sure walmart is priced as negatively as um, you know, as some of the other U.S. retailers, and there's a reason for that because it is a higher quality business. Um, but uh, ideally, you, you'd want the mark to be really right to get off completely, and then what you get is a free option on them uh, getting mm -hmm. things right. Okay, uh, and finally, um, WPP, the world's biggest advertising firm, uh, CEO Martin Sorrell, who started the firm, and I think he started it by buying a shell company, a plastics company, about 30 years ago, uh, and he's built WPP from that, and he's quit. Uh, and it's a brand that's very much aligned with Martin Sorrell. What sort of a whammy is this to WPP to lose 
the founder. Yeah, on the positive side, I'm sure the, um, the executive remuneration bill is going to go down significantly. <laughs> it's always one of the highest paid um, and took a lot of flack for it. Uh, it's a very tough time for these businesses, obviously with, with the likes of Google and Facebook. Yeah, so online advertising. Yeah, there's really an existential crisis. Do, do we really need advertising agencies? And I think the reality is probably yes, and it's somewhere in the middle. Um, there's always going to be a space for, for these businesses, but I think, as always, the, the old school, whether it's the Walmarts or the retailers, they've come in and they've, they've been able to really just cream it for, for a number of years. And there's going to be a lot of pressure on their margins and, and the size of their businesses. So potentially an opportunity in that space, but, but maybe the market's right and, and these businesses are, you know, don't, aren't, aren't really going to be around at all in the future because you can just uh, log on online. But you know, somebody's still got to make the, the ads, even if they're video ads, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the reality is, no matter what the outlook is, their profitability is going to shrink and they are going to not make as much money as they have in the past because online is cutting out a lot of these, a lot of these middlemen. Do you think we, we could see the breakup of the likes of WPP? Perhaps um, what, what, what you may see is like we've seen in the retailers is they're, and they're already doing it. All of these agencies are doing it is going out and buying these digital agencies that are maybe a little bit more innovative. They've obviously got their own digital mm -hmm. um, space as well. The question is how much value can they, can they actually add? Okay, well, let's leave it there for a moment. We're going to a short break. When we come back, we look at the Ned Group Investments Global Equity Fund. That's with Anil Jagmohan. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching Global Investors. Still with me in studio, Nick Norman-Smith from Lentis Asset Management. We're also joined on the line to discuss the Global Equity Fund uh, by Ned Group Investments, Anil Jagmohan. Um, Anil, thanks very much for coming in. So if somebody buys into the, the Ned Group Investments Global Equity Fund, what are they getting? Good evening, Stephen. Thanks very much for having me back. It's always a pleasure. So just a quick recap for you know those viewers who are not uh, familiar with the Ned Group Global Equity Fund. So you know, when you buy into our fund, you're getting a concentrated global equity fund with about 25 to 40 stocks at any given point in time. Importantly, we always focus on only purchasing high-quality companies when these are attractively valued. And, of course, our top priority remains capital preservation. So if you say 25 to 40 stocks, how, how many would you have at the moment? Because I see there is quite a large cash component components in the fund, 14% in cash. Are you underweight in equity at the moment? Yeah, that's correct. So cash is one of the highest levels that it has been historically. So we have about 29 stocks in the portfolio as we speak. And obviously what we try to do is to make sure that we're not buying companies for the sake of it. So you know, where we have opportunities to buy existing companies that we already own and where the prices have become more attractive, you know, if it's consistent with our thesis, absolutely we will buy in, but where we're not finding opportunities, because remember, we have to be exceptionally strict in terms of our valuation discipline. So where we aren't finding sufficient opportunities, we would rather allow cash to rise within the portfolio as opposed to buying expensive stocks just for the sake of maintaining a given level of equity exposure within the fund. Mm. I'm sure that must be music to your ears, Nick, not spending money uh, on expensive stocks. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and of course, you're taking on a lot of risk, when w risk, career risk, uh, client risk when you do that. 
but uh, that's why you're getting paid fees to 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 actively manage the, a fund. Anil, maybe if you could talk to us a bit about the the geographic allocation. I mean, the uh, it looks like the U.S. allocation is is pretty much in line with the the global benchmark. Um, a lot of value-based investors are are finding the U.S. quite expensive. Are there particular areas that you're avoiding or or, or looking at or, or finding particularly attractive? Mm, good question, Nick. So. So absolutely, you're right. We probably have a higher allocation to the U.S. than you know what you may find for particularly some of the other South African-based global equity funds. Um, I'll get back to that in a moment. We have about 20% in Europe and you know about 10% in the U.K. But particularly in the U.S., I mean to answer your question about some of the themes that we see. So there's a large technology theme within the portfolio and a large healthcare theme as well. So in tech, I mean some of these are. You know, some of the more well-known names, such as, you know, such as Google, Oracle, Microsoft. I mean, we've actually bought into Facebook recently as well. Um, interestingly, from a healthcare perspective, it's actually a very diverse set of companies that we have invested in. So a large number of them are health insurers and PBMs, in other words, pharmacy benefit managers, where you know, they effectively go out and buy medications in bulk and then provide it to individuals like you know, yourself and I, at significantly cheaper prices than we can go and buy it if we had to go to the pharmacy ourselves. So, you know, interestingly, you know, some of these companies actually make dental equipment. Some of them make laboratory equipment, such as gloves and test tubes and so on. So even though it is, you know, let's call it the healthcare theme within the portfolio, it's actually quite a diverse bunch of companies that we have invested in. Mm-hmm. How, how recently did you buy that stake in Facebook, Anil? Was it after, after it had taken the... The, the fall post the, the Cambridge Analytica fallout? Yeah, that's exactly right. So good opportunity. Would you have been looking at Facebook at, at that time, uh, Nick? Look, it, it, it was the first time that we'd probably taken, a, taken another look given the negativity. Suddenly, suddenly the valuation, I think at one point, is trading at sort of maybe 20 times forward earnings. Uh, look, remember, this is a $500 billion market cap company, so how big can it grow? Ta- time will tell. But... Yeah, th- these are probably the, the times that we start looking at these businesses is, is when they become fallen angels, which I don't think we're anywhere close to in terms mm-hmm. of Facebook. So, no, we don't think there's a big enough margin of safety yet. But, but I would say relative to where it has been valued over the last couple of years, the earnings are starting to, to grow into it. So, so not quite yet, but um, yeah, we, I mean, we, own, we own Baidu, which is essentially the Google of, of China as well, which I see that they hold there. So it, it's a slightly more off-piste, perhaps, tech than a, than a Google or a Facebook but has the same positive qualities um, in, in underlying business. Mm. Yeah, p- perhaps tell us about Baidu and the rationale f- for that, Anil, because I see you've got quite a big stake, 4% of the portfolio in Baidu. Okay, yeah, I mean, very good question. It really is an interesting company. I mean, as Nick mentioned, it is effectively like the Google of China. I mean, as you know, you know Google can't really operate in China because they're more about kind of freedom of media and you know, the Internet, whereas Baidu is a lot more willing to toe the line when it comes to the Chinese regulators' um, impositions about the kind of news and, and things that they can actually show as search results. Now, interestingly with Baidu, I mean, they've actually been very, very successful at refocusing their business. So even though a lot of their revenue is actually generated from advertising just in the same way as Google has been, you know, they've actually been spending quite a lot of cash. I mean, you know, let's call it spending, but it's actually more wasting cash on businesses that are sort of online to offline, such as, you know, the travel agency, the food delivery businesses, and so on. 
But, you know, what they have been doing over time is actually slowly exiting, you know, many of these businesses and, you know, in some cases selling a stake to a competitor and then taking an ownership stake in that competitor. So they've been doing some quite innovative things to make sure that they can actually increase cash flows and generate more profitability. I mean, interestingly, they also have a Netflix kind of streaming service, which, you know, there's potentially plans to IPO that, which could lead to, you know, quite a big um, creation of value and potentially maybe $10 billion or more. So, you know, we actually think that Baidu has, you know, a lot of growth ahead of it and actually very, very well positioned for the longer term. So, you know, even though there have been some shorter term noise because of, you know, revenue growth being potentially a bit lower over the short term um, than what some industry expecting, you know, we actually think that's just noise in the system at the moment because, as I mentioned, they're very, very well positioned for the long term. Mm -hmm. They actually have already, I've heard that Netflix business, oh, the Netflix business, yeah, I think it's, its market cap is yeah, well over 10 billion at the moment, so, um, so that's, it's, it's one step clearer if, if you want to do sort of some of the parts valuation. Again, take it with a pinch of salt, there's massive positivity towards a Netflix and, and that kind mm -hmm. of a business, um, but still, there, there is clearly some value there, even though it is still loss making. Uh, what other opportunities are you seeing in, in emerging markets, and Neil, what, what sort of exposure do you have to emerging markets? So, you know, it's also an interesting question. So right now, we're probably at our lowest exposure in emerging markets that we ever have been. So, you know, pretty much Millicom Cellular is, you know, one of the big players. And, you know, it's similar to MTN in the sense that, you know, they do operate in a lot of these um, sort of North African and um, Asian and Middle Eastern regions. But, you know, they've actually been seen to be quite good operators in the areas that they do play. So, you know, it's actually a very small bet within the portfolio, uh, you know, around 1.5%. But, you know, that's, you know, that's primarily our EM play. So we largely focus on developed markets. Mm. I mean, how expert role does Net Group Investments play in the, the investment decision-making? Because you do have a sub-investment manager, which is Veritas Asset Management. Do they, do they make the calls on the portfolio? Absolutely. So in terms of our best of breed philosophy, we try to find the very best managers in the world that can manage the various mandates for us. You know, we don't believe that any single manager is a specialist at everything. So that's why we try to find the specialist for a particular mandate. And in terms of global equity, you know, we believe that Veritas Asset Management are the specialists and we effectively outsource all decisions, portfolio construction, you know, research, to, uh, to Veritas on this portfolio. And, and then how does this ultimately add to the, the fees that the investors will be paying to, to Net Group? So what we've tried to do is to negotiate quite hard with Veritas, and we try to provide a fee to the end investor that's still very competitive if you look at you know, the other options you might have in the South African marketplace. So the end investor is not disadvantaged, and you know, obviously, you know, our margin is a lot slimmer, but we've also negotiated quite hard with Veritas from that perspective.
Okay. So, I mean, the total expense ratio, just over 1.5%, I mean, does that sound fair for, for what you're, you're getting there? Yeah, I think, you know, I think you are getting an active fund. It's clear in terms of the, the number of stock holdings. Um, I mean, interestingly, the returns have been pretty similar to the benchmark. However, if you do dig down into, into the holdings and the fact that they've got quite a cash component, I think it's pretty clear they are making quite active decisions. Um, and, and as I've always said, time will tell whether the active manager outperforms. But what you don't want is you don't want to be paying active fees for, for a, a fund that is just tracking the benchmark. I don't think that's, that's the case here. So time will tell if, if, if Ned Group have, you know, have selected the right manager but certainly at least they do appear to be quite active, which is certainly a positive sign. Yeah, uh, Anil, this is a, this is a, sorry? So if I could just add to that quickly. So absolutely over the recent past, you know, Veritas has struggled a little bit because of you know, some of the tech pullback and some of the sort of Amazon effects on the healthcare sector um, that has helped the fund. But over the long term, they've actually been able to outperform the peer group by about 3.5% um, since around 2001. So, you know, that's certainly quite attractive. Mm. Uh, this is a dollar-based fund, but there is a rand-based feeder fund alternative. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. And yeah, let's leave it there, but th thanks very much for joining us again this evening. Thanks, Nick and Stephen. Have a good evening. Yeah, that's where we have to leave it for today. Thanks again to Nick Norman-Smith. He's the Chief Investment Officer at Lentis Asset Management. And of course, Anil Jagmohan. He's Senior Investment Analyst at Net Group Investments. Thanks to you for watching. Same time next week. Goodbye.